Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Happy holidays. Thanks for sticking with us all year. Today, I'm going to be bringing you interview I did with Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Steely Dan, of course, somehow keeps getting cooler, keeps getting a younger audience, a somewhat unexpected turn of events, but a very well-deserved one. This is an interview I did a couple years ago with Donald Fagan. It's a brand new edit of it. He went deep on the history of Steely Dan, his relationship with Walter Becker, as well as revealing for the first time some of his last interactions with Walter. It's very much worth your time. Let's jump straight into that interview. Steely Dan, except you know, perhaps at the very beginning, was not so much a band as a sort of entity. Its very nature was always fascinating to me that that it was you know it was you and Walter, and after the first couple albums and you know whoever you felt could play the songs best. Yeah, it started as a band, of um, course. Yeah, but um, after uh, you know a couple tours on the road, uh, uh, Walter and I weren't really having that much fun on the road in those days. The conditions were harsh, and we were opening for a lot of heavy metal groups and so on. It was wasn't ideal so we decided to just record and uh, of course the other guys wanted to go out and play so uh you know basically we dissolved that particular band and then started working with studio musicians because because we started as staff writers out in la for uh, abc dunhill records they had their own studio like built into this um building this this the abc building so we would get to see all these great studio players come in and and do tracks, you know, starting nine o'clock in the morning for, uh, you know, uh, they do jingles, they do TV themes, but the musicians were amazing. You know, Jim Gordon was often playing the drums and and uh, Michael O'Marion was playing the piano and so on. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we got to know these guys and uh, we said, hey, let's bring these guys in to play. I mean, the funny thing is, in my estimation, that original band was... Although you have many unhappy memories of, of touring and the live shows, there's some documentation of that original band smoking live. That record plant bootleg is, is fantastic. There's- yeah, we got pretty good uh, towards the end of it, actually. You know, they were all good players, and uh, I think it, got, it, it took a uh, leap when Mike McDonald joined the band as a, you know, a second singer and keyboard, and uh, it was great to, to be playing with him. Just as a quick side note while we're in this era, there's the um, famous slash infamous spoken intro to the live version of Bodhisattva. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, I think, is one of the funniest things that's ever been put on record. Maybe we can hear that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we're glad you made it here tonight because you're going to miss out. You can tell your friend tomorrow. That they're going to miss out on a damn good thing we're going to give you tonight. And one thing I can tell you, brother, he is here tonight. Mr. Magnificent One is here. The beautiful one is here. <laughs> <laughs> you little old pretty one is here, too. You know, whatever. Here is the Magnificent One, the one and the only one. Mr. Stilly Danny, whatever. That was your bus driver? Is that... Is the, uh, no, actually, he was one of the truckers. Okay. Uh, he drove the uh, one of the semis, that, you know, full of equipment. And his name was Jerome Anatone. I don't know 
what's become of him. <laughs> but um, one night he asked if you know he could he could introduce us, and and he he was pretty uh, happy by about uh, showtime every night. And uh, so uh, you know he would announce the show every night, and that one happened to be recorded. He didn't really know the name of the band or who was who. He thought your name was Steely Don or something. Was that? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, or Stevie Dan. <laughs> Steve, right. Yeah, he wasn't exactly sure who he was working for. There's a story about him. Once he, he uh, yeah, he was, he was, you know, I guess an alcoholic essentially. And he would, he, uh, you know, they have these big loading uh, docks when you go into a venue with the uh, door that opens vertically, those sort of corrugated doors, you know. And, and uh, he once just, uh, he didn't wait for the door to open completely and just ran the truck in and it sheared the top of the truck <laughs> off. That's fine work there. His uh, his MC skills though were were it was excellent. Unparalleled. Yeah, excellent. He could have been a DJ before there were DJs. So the other thing that you said over the years was you guys figured out if you didn't have a band, no one could make you tour. Is that a joke, or was that part of the, the literal um, thinking there? Um. Well, maybe unconsciously. Do you remember sitting down with? Walter and actually having that discussion of it doesn't have to be a band anymore. It could just be us and we could, do you know what I mean? Was it a conscious sit down kind of decision? Well, the way I remember it was we were in London, I remember, and we did a couple of shows at the Rainbow and uh, they went well, but then I, I got, I got sick. Like my, uh, I had some kind of uh, uh, really bad laryngitis. So uh, we all we all came home from that, and then we did a few more gigs on the West Coast. And you know, both of us were really worn out from the you know sort of style of touring we were doing in those days. And we both said, you know what, we're gonna die if we can keep doing this. <laughs> and uh, let's let's you know after the next record, let's just try to talk the president of the company, this guy Jay Lasker, a big cigar smoking uh, entrepreneur. Um, if we could just you know record records and. And he was fine with it as long as they sold. And and in fact, you know, after we stopped touring, the the sales, of course, rose. Great, they were they were inflated. So uh, you know, maybe it was better that we didn't tour. One of the things that also afforded you, of course, was an ability to achieve ever greater levels of sort of um, technical achievement and perfection, both sonic and, and musical. Walter probably post everything must go, or maybe even a little earlier. He had gotten a little sick, he said, of perfectionism and chasing that thing, which was fascinating to me because that's sort of part of the very essence of what people think of as Steely Dan. And I'm not sure you ever got sick of it. <laughs> yeah, I think we were both getting a little uh, tired of, of the uh, difficulty of making those, those kinds of records. Although I don't think we were ever truly like perfectionists. We, I don't think we thought of ourselves as, we just wanted the, the records to sound professional, like big band jazz records, you know? Like right. Clean, you know, good, clean playing. And But uh, I think maybe it's true we did go overboard, and by the last record in the 70s called Gaucho, we may have, uh, you know, just went past it a little bit. I think that's what I love about that record, but yeah. I, I yeah, mean, I like it too. I like it too. It's But it's, uh, you know, maybe... maybe uh, there were some live live playing on that record, certainly, but uh, there could have been more, I think. Not to sound like when in your Ennio Morricone interview when you're presenting him with theories and he just grunts, but there's a certain unity, perhaps unintentional, between the themes of that record and the arguably over-labored music. It actually mm -hmm. works, and, and it works very well together. Yeah, but, no, I think it, it turned out to be a thing. That's for sure, yeah. There's so many great stories about the lengths that you guys went to. I mean, one, of course, is Wendell, which mm -hmm. was a drum machine so 
primitive. There's a story that someone had to type into the machine for five to 20 minutes to get maybe one bar or something like well, that. Well, yeah, this was in the early days of uh, digital uh, recording and digital sampling and all that. And uh, we were having trouble getting a track and I uh, forget which one. It is. Hey 19, actually. Hey 19, yes. maybe, yeah. And uh, so our engineer, Roger Nichols, who was a brilliant uh, guy and um, had been working with computers for, for years before anybody else was. And he, uh, I remember we said, you know, that Roger Lynn drum machine, you know, it's it's not good enough. It's too bad. It's, it's It wasn't uh, full frequency recording. It was like, uh, you know, low sample rate. And also, uh, you know, you couldn't really... Man- manipulate the beats that much so so to which we had a machine that could you know it's just as uh full frequency as the digital machine we're using and and roger said uh yeah i can i can make that i can i think i can build one of those <laughs> he says all i need is about two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> so we just we had about two hundred thousand dollars left in our budget like that was like half the budget or something and we just gave him the money and then uh we uh knocked off for three weeks and then he came in with this machine you know um but it was as you say it was uh, primitive compared to what they have now it was uh he had to type in the uh, bytes themselves you know <laughs> a list of, of bytes um to get a sound out of it and like I remember, he said, "I this this uh, symbol or whatever lasts too long for the memory." There's not a. He says, "I gotta wait till till September." So he said, "Well, what, what's happening?" He says, "Well, that's when Intel is coming out with an, a better chip." And so finally, uh, you know, after a while, we we could finally uh, record, you know, long things. But uh, it was very uh, laborious and boring and stupid. Well, I mean, what what always but it worked. It, yes, it did work, and it sounds great. But yeah, it did but, work. But at the same time, you had access to literally any drummer in the world. That's true. We and although we always, um, you know, we were sort of scrupulous about it. We'd always try to do the tr- a track first live. Yeah, and you know, sometimes we'd get it, and if we didn't. We'd take a sample from the track we just recorded and credit the drummer who who played it. I mean, at the same time, something like the title track of Asia. I mean, that's Steve Gadd. I think on the on the first take, yeah, was, or second. Maybe. Yeah, we did two takes. I think we edited first and second take together. Yeah. So when appropriate, you were very happy to use. something Yeah, very you know, important. it's whatever works. You know, it was our philosophy. He goes around to drum clinic still showing people how to play that that uh, those fills that solo. You know, it's that, that's how yeah. You know, we just set him loose. There was a we had a, a long chart. It was like eight pages or something that uh, I had come up with. With uh, Larry Carlton helped me to to uh, put it together, and uh, it was taped onto his stand. And he just uh, there was a part where it just said drum solo. <laughs> and he just he, he did it. That's what he, he obliged. Did. He, he, he mm-hmm. provided the drum solo, yeah. and we'll hear that for just a moment. One of the things that you know people struggle to understand for years and uh, maybe can never understand having not been inside the partnership is is just sort of who did what, how it worked. It's a question you could probably answer in an entire book, which maybe you'll actually write one day, but what insight can you provide about the nature of the songwriting and production partnership? Well, um, you know, we just get together at either his his apartment or my apartment or when we're in California, we have rented houses, but... Uh, 
And I'd, you know, be at the piano and, you know, I'd have some ideas or he'd have some ideas and he would have a bass, a guitar or something. And uh, we'd just kick it around and whatever was the whatever was the funniest thing we could think of, then we, we started working on that, you know, <laughs> whatever seemed really like... Uh, Both musically and lyrically, kind of. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted the music to be good so that it wasn't just a pastiche or something like, or a, uh, you know, a straight parody. We... we we had, you know, because we were jazz fans, we had certain standards. But, um, you know, it had to be, it had to sort of, you know, pass for straight, even though we knew it wasn't. You know, it was like, because uh, I, I don't like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't want the humor to be broad. You know, we wanted it to be uh, nuanced. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So Don, we were talking a little bit about how the partnership on a songwriting and production level worked with Walter, and you, you said whatever made you laugh the most is kind of what you went with. In your book, when you described your first songwriting sessions together, mm-hmm. you said that you basically end up rolling on the floor, just cracking each other up. That's true. I, I guess, you know, uh, you know, we were kids, you know, and it was, it was just... The problem is we couldn't really take it that seriously, I suppose. You know, we, like... You know, we admired, uh, we, we were big fans of the Birds, I remember, and uh, hmm. uh, Frank Zappa, and um, couldn't take anything seriously, apparently. <laughs> but, um, and, uh, you know, we loved Motown and soul, soul music and blues and so on, but when we'd start writing, it would just get out of hand, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Walter, I think, used to get more out of hand than I did, and I'd have to sort of bring him back a little bit, so it wouldn't be too, uh, you know, ridiculous. At the same time, I think you said that your ideas tended to be on a lyrical level more on a fantasy level and that he would come more from observation of life. Um, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid. He did too. But um, I was sort of, uh, I liked the kind of science fiction that commented on the present uh, by kind of extrapolating from the present and, and, you know, creating a future that would kind of bring out certain things about the present that in a funny way and walter was um i think he had greater powers of observation like he was uh, you know uh, observing people psychology um he was he was really uh you know he could have i think if he wanted to he could have been a novelist or short story writer if he had the patience you've written great nonfiction. you don't think that you you could have done the same if you'd had the patience no i, I can't write fiction I've, I've actually given it a try once in a while it's just not my it always has to be grounded in some real real thing i'm I, you know i can write essays but not not fiction you guys had a lot of similarities you also had uh you know major differences in, in your sort of background so walter you know had a as you said, rough childhood, you know, his dad died when he was 16, his, his mom was out of the picture, it was it was not smooth sailing, uh, whereas you grew up bored eventually when you moved to a part of New Jersey you hated, but with a stable family. Yeah, and my family was, was uh, relatively stable, yeah, for sure. I mean, how did those differences 
play themselves out in, in, in your estimation? Well, you know, I think I got to see, you know, at, at uh, close range, you know, what can happen, I think, to somebody if, if you know, the parenting isn't really there. And, um, you know, he uh, you know, gave him a lot of problems. He was, I think he was very insecure. He, uh, you know, um, as time went on, he uh, had, had some, uh, you know, drug problems. And I think he, you know, uh, people who are... Uh, either have abusive parents or parents who give mixed messages, whatever, or aren't there, it's, it is more difficult in a way because they, uh, unless someone else comes in to take their place, you know, they, I think their, uh, their center is wavy, mm. you know, their, their core. And it's, it's, uh, and I think it's, it's very painful, uh, on some level that, you know, perhaps I don't even understand. And, uh, so there, I think that's, that's why a lot of, uh, I think people, in that situation end up you know trying to medicate themselves or uh have you know various other problems you've written of your own issues with anxiety and such but mm-hmm. this this forced you i guess to be the the saner member of the partnership for the most part you know we we supported each other i think uh and uh you know it's like you know i went through my own stuff too sometimes and he was he was great but um you know he uh he certainly had his share of problems what's incredible is it's now and said, of of course, as well, but it, it's now a body of work, what you guys did together. You, there's a beginning and an end, at least a, on a recorded level. You know, and it doesn't just encompass uh, the Steely Dan records. There's soul records that you guys actually worked on together in, mm-hmm. in, in some form. I mean, are you satisfied with what came from the partnership? Did you did you eke out? Well, first of all, a, yeah. you mentioned body of work. I remember when we... Uh, you know, uh, won a, a album of the year at the Grammys. Um, yeah. I remember Walter said something. We weren't being applauded for our body of work, but rather for our bodies that work. <laughs> Which were, you know, we were getting on at that time. Is it too soon for you to, to be able to look back and, and, and say, well, you know, we did this much together? You know? Yeah, I think we did pretty well. You know, I think, uh, you know, I'm not really that interested in stuff that I've done. I'm always sort of, uh, I'm I'm uh, always working on something, you know, uh, not always with uh, great success. But I'm I'm always more interested in what I'm doing presently than uh, than the old stuff. And you know, other people have to judge it if it you know was any good. Do you, any regrets that that you didn't get another Stilly Down record out together? Yeah, kind of. You know, Walter. Um, he. Um, I think you know, uh, yeah, he had some health problems, and and uh, especially after maybe 2011, 12, he, I felt that you know he, I think just being ill for so long, he he, he had a little bit of a personality change, and mm. he was, he was uh, much more isolated, I think, and uh, so on, and he kind of, uh, he wasn't that interested in 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 working on Steely Dan records anymore and it, it also might have to do with what you were speaking of I think he you know the uh, specter of of doing an album that would you know be on the same standard that that we did previously I mean uh, but you know maybe that scared him a little bit right maybe he didn't feel he had the energy yeah and it's right I mean and that's something you know when, when you talk to people who've done amazing things already that does loom like you you know you're going to be judged by that standard and that that can be you know yeah it didn't really bother me that much but I think, <laughs> yeah, I think he he had a thing about it and um yeah it's true like because i i did ask him 
uh, once in a while if he wanted to do something and he'd he'd usually say yeah sure but then you know he he wouldn't call me or you know whatever so he, he it's obviously he he's lost some of the enthusiasm Obviously, there was a period when you guys fell out of touch. Before the reunion in the 90s, you guys got back together actually way before, of course, uh, before the comeback album. And then what people don't really have a sense of, and, you know, it's 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 your business to a certain extent, but, you know, the sort of ebb and flow of, of the relationship in the 2000s, besides that little bit of distancing in the in this decade, was, was it an ebb and flow, or were you guys pretty close, or how did it all kind of work? Um. Well, you know, I think uh, after we got back together uh, in, I guess, in the early 90s, yeah, yeah um, you know, we both had families at that point, and like a lot of other groups, you know, you don't see each other as much, you have, you know, uh, responsibilities and so on, or children or whatever, so... Uh, you know, it was it wasn't like when we were kids. But, you know, we were, we were always friends, and... Um, you know, uh, except for maybe the last couple of years when he, I think he, because of his health, he, he was more isolated. We were always like, uh, every time we'd, we'd talk, we'd, we'd still be laughing. And so, and it was, it was always fun. A friend of his, uh, told one of my colleagues that he, that Walter was like actually drinking again in the, in the two thousands. Um, I thought he wasn't a big drinker as far as I know. I remember seeing him having, you know, some wine once in a while, but that, that wasn't, wasn't an issue. It wasn't a big thing as I remember. Did you? Int- he was more into opiates on a continuing basis. <laughs> no, uh, intermittently. Not to ever compare you to Mick and Keith. Uh, you know, I know that that Mick was. It's a hard comparison to draw, but I know that Mick sometimes. You know, people love Keith and 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 worship his sort of you know um, pushing it to the edge lifestyle, but it can be very frustrating to be Mick and have to deal with Keith. I don't know if it was and vice ever- versa. I'm sure. <laughs> Good point. Yes. Were you ever sort of Mick in that scenario where you're trying to keep it together? And You know, I remember sort of these brief periods um, in when we were touring in the early 70s. Uh, I think, you know, he hated touring then. And he, you know, he, was, he became a little hard to deal with then. And I remember having a talk about it. And then he was cool, you know, for years afterwards. And then, uh, you know, there were a few other periods where, where I felt I should talk to him. Things did fray during, during Gaucho and not just because of the, the sort of perfectionism or however you, you would phrase it. Yeah, he was, he was in a really bad, bad situation in the, uh, the end of the 70s. That's true. What were the musical differences, if any, between your sort of tastes and what, what sort of sounds or approaches or whatever was more him or more you if that can be teased out at all it's hard to say i think maybe if if someone listens to his solo records which i which i love uh and my solo records it's i think that's probably the best way to tell although we were very very much of one mind for the most part i think uh generally speaking like um you know, when I first met him, he was and he, you know, I just heard the songs he had written when he was 17, 18. They were maybe folkier. He had weird chords, but but a lot of it was guitar-based. I would say more um yeah, kind of, you know, New York folky. And uh I think I was already starting to put more like jazz harmony into it um and, you know, so on, but it didn't seem to be a problem. We just, you know, used a little of his stuff and a little of my stuff, and we just kind of the songs just grew like uh, <laughs> excrescences, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
the use of uh, you know fantastic and sometimes incongruous theoretically jazz chords in in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. One time you guys cited uh, Laura Nero as an influence on that. Is that yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I remember Walter it, at school. He had a was uh, sharing a dorm, a very large dorm room with the roommate, and he had these huge Altec uh, speakers. Um, studio monitors his used studio monitors he had bought on the floor and uh, i remember once he said hey you got to hear this and we went up and he had uh, this lura nero record um and uh i was the one that had like uh it had uh, i remember had a song chambers walls of heartache mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we were amazed by that record because it used a lot of uh uh, stuff from modern music like uh, you know, Hindemith and Bartok, you know, type of chords with uh, triads with, uh, you know, the wrong bass note and stuff like that. Plus, she, she had a way of of, uh, of mixing mixing it in with blues and Motown type stuff that was fantastic. And uh, I think that uh, we started to become like sort of more experimental uh, after hearing that and a few other a few other. Th- things without doing a, a music theory lesson for our listeners there there's a a, a chord that you guys uh, named the the moon major if if people heard it they would recognize it do you remember how that became such a a signature for you guys or where you possibly stole it from <laughs> yeah that's we didn't certainly didn't invent no that. It's like, it goes back to the <clears throat> was, 13th century or uh, whatever probably yeah. does yeah. yeah um and there's you know certain pops like steven sondheim you know, uses that chord all the time. Yeah, it was just uh, you know, I, I was just I think part of my my piano style. If I'm harmonizing something, I'll just naturally go to that 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 kind of harmony, that kind of chord. And uh, I remember our our guitar player in the in the '70s, Den, Denny Diaz. Um, he wasn't used to playing that on the guitar, so we, uh, you know, Walter found all the voicings. That you could play on the guitar of that one thing. Some some of them apparently were impossible to play unless you had seven fingers or something. <laughs> and we we wrote a little sort of treatise on the chord, which we called the Moo Major chord, and uh, uh, basically to try to prank guitar players who thought that you know maybe they were missing something. <laughs> there, there's been people yeah breaking their fingers yeah. trying to play these chords. Since, I know it yeah. was a terrible thing to do, and you know we were <laughs> it's we a, were kids. You know? It's the keyboardist revenge on guitar players. Yeah. Walter was, uh, you know, a fantastic bass player, mm-hmm. a killer lead guitarist, among other things. But he wasn't always excited about playing, you know, on records or, you know, even sometimes live. What what was that about? You know, one of your engineers, Elliot uh, Shiner, was said he was always confused why he didn't play more. Yeah, I was too. It's uh, I think it, again, it, was, it goes back to a certain kind of insecurity. Um, he. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, he was a great player, but uh, you know, for some reason, he he was just uh, didn't have uh, confidence. As as time went on, he he uh, became more confident about his playing. But uh, you know, I'd certainly always encourage him to play because I loved his touch and his his ideas were you know amazing. Your keyboard player playing though has always been kind of close to the center, and it's often simple parts for all the complexity. It's it's often you're kind of just playing the chords, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no particular interest in showing off on your part. No, I mean, uh, you know, I, I I do have, I think, certain limitations to, to my playing, but um, 
Uh, yeah, it's it's. I think just my role is more of a, as a rhythm player. Um, you know, uh, sometimes in uh, live, I'll you know uh, give myself a solo once in a while or something like that. But on records, um, you know, I don't know. There's you know, rock and roll. It's it's kind of uh, underwhelming sometimes to hear a piano <laughs> piano solo, at least in the style I play, which is some kind of single note right hand beboppy style you know it's it's like it's it sounds a little weak sometimes with with the the other instrumentation you know so i, I guess i just haven't sometimes i i've done some things on synth- synthesizer that uh yeah i think fit in better you once thought about applying supposedly to uh, be in bob dylan's touring band or auditioning wouldn't that have been dull for you given the kind of chords and and simplicity of of his music uh no because um I think if you listen to the way, for instance, Richard Manuel uh, mm. plays Bob Dylan songs, they're they're not boring at all. They're, he he has a lot of gospel uh, flourishes and uh, what you call added note harmony, like the Moo Major, right, right, something like that. So he he I th- I think you know if I did it, it would be more along those lines, maybe more even. Uh, you know, with a little, little more uh, jazz stuff in it, and I think it would work. Um, so you, know, you still I, want the gig, maybe? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like uh, he seems to, have, he's got his voice back. Sounds like to me a little bit. I, I'm hearing that too. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's maybe I don't know how that thing. happened. Well, he's got, he's got a voice back. A, some, yeah, he's got one of his voices back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were always, you always seem dubious about your own singing. Is mm-hmm. that have you ever grown to a level of comfort with with your voice? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, you know I've had some uh, coaching along the way, and huh. uh, it's much easier to sing now than when I didn't know how to sing at all. Is there a voice you wish you had? <laughs> well, uh, Ray Charles, <laughs> maybe. Or, you know, I I I, I just. Don't, consider myself a great singer for sure and i but i i do the best i can i think the thing that gets me by is is for the kind of stuff we write i have the right attitude attitude yeah and that's uh you know just as important i think in uh rhythm and blues and rock music i've somehow found a thing uh, where where i go to youtube and i watch people attempt to cover steely dan songs yeah uh, that's <laughs> usually a pretty sad experience <laughs> a lot of people attempt josie uh, mm. Which which is interesting. Well, I, I call it the Bill Murray effect. Uh huh. Because uh, you know, it was when he he on SNL when he used to yeah. do lounge versions of Star Wars things like that. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. We were talking about you know what Steely Dan is, and now you're you you know you're gonna you already have played shows without Walter. Mm-hmm. So is that in your mind? Is that still Steely Dan, or is it? you fronting the Steely Dan band who used to be Steely Dan. I mean, you know what I mean? How do, how do you see that as what the thing is without him? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, uh, I would pref- actually prefer to call it, you know, Donald Fagan and Steely Dan band or something like that. We got a lot of flack from uh, from uh, Live Nation, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, <laughs> about calling it Steely Dan. And, um, you know, that's an ongoing... Uh, debate in other words they want you to call it steely dan for commercial reasons or or you mean they do want you yeah yeah right 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 it just sells better yeah there's suits you know it feels more like the other thing you said to you and to me it does because to me steely dan was just me and walter really it was like a concept that we had together and um 
but uh you know it doesn't it's, it's no big thing to me either way frankly but uh i, I think uh in in my mind it's steely den was me and walter so so uh you know um you know, I'm hoping I could persuade these people to let me do what I want, as far as that goes. Did you get to have the 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 final conversation or conversations with him that you would have wanted to have? Well, that's a. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of you know, I you know I heard when I heard he was really ill. I was on the road in I think Salinas, Kansas, and I flew back. I had a day off. And he was in his apartment in New York, and um, I was really glad that I went. You know, it was like um, I could see he was really struggling. Um, but you know, it's it's like he like when I when I, I put a chair next to the bed, and he like grabbed my hand, and it was like <laughs> something he would has never done ever before. Wow. And um, we had a great talk and you know he was listening to hard bop mm. uh his wife had on a like a on a dexter gordon record or something like that and um he was still very funny uh even though he was very weak and i'm i'm you know really glad i had those hours you know it was important i think to do that you know you had to go out and play of all things stadium gigs at a big festival while this was going on without him yeah it was very weird you know, not having him there. Um, and, uh, you know, we got through it. And then we had these these gigs booked in October uh, after that. So, uh, you know, I did it. And after a while, it, it didn't seem as strange, you know, after a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, it'll always feel a little weird, you know. I mean, that's it's always going to feel that way. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I can handle it, you know. And how long do you doesn't seem like retirement or anything like it is uh, is in the offing how how long do you want to be a touring musician and and keep mm-hmm. got the night flyers still a damn band so there's a, possibly mm-hmm. recording there's a lot you yeah could for be. sure yeah yeah no i feel good you know i'm going to be 70 in january but uh you know, i'm feeling really good um you know i try to you know do enough <laughs> exercise to keep myself from falling apart you know, mm. like, what do you do what's your uh... i go swimming a couple yeah. times a week and you know, sometimes floor exercise and things like that but uh have you stayed i'm, I'm not like Sorry. one of those i don't i don't try to get ripped or anything. <laughs> that's that's never been that's never gonna happen you know uh but uh you know i try to keep myself going do you want to keep touring like just pretty much as long as you physically can? Yeah, you know, it, yeah. it keeps you young for sure. Touring, I, I notice like when I'm off, I don't feel as good as when I'm on. You know, if I'm, uh, I got to be the recording or uh, touring, or and I, I especially enjoying live performance more than I used to because uh, we have a fantastic band. I got a couple of fantastic bands, and yeah. uh, it's just so much fun to uh, to be with these guys and, and to play. You know. And that is today's episode. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. And we are, of course, a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Seriously, would really appreciate that. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening all year. And we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.